Superman's just sick. Superman, please get better. He's not listening to you, Ricky. Yes, he is. He can hear me. He's got super hearing. Superman, you're just in a slump. Do it, Superman. Superman, you can't hear me, can't you? Superman, you're just in a slump. Do it right again. You can do it, Superman. Superman, And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Back to the Bins proudly presents I've got a few things to say about Superman. Hello and welcome to I've got a few things to say about Superman. This is episode 15 and my name is Snark McGill. Thanks so much for downloading this episode. I really appreciate it and I hope you enjoy the content. So, right out of the gate, we have feedback. Listen to this. I actually printed it out. Feedback on paper. Thank you so much to everyone who uh, has been downloading and listening. But thank you especially to those that have been providing feedback, uh, however you've been providing, whether it's been face-to-face or through, you know, talking to me on Skype or Facebook or whatever the case may be. But those of you that took the extra time to actually write in, really appreciate that. So we have some feedback to cover for this episode. Now, some of these go quite a ways back, so I do apologize it's taken me so long to get to them. But I want to go ahead and jump right into this. So the first one is simply entitled The Phantom Zone. And this is from my good friend Andy Leyland of Hey Kids Comics and the Palace of Glittering Delights all the way from the UK. And Andy writes, he says, really enjoyable episode on the Phantom Zone. Now, I don't know which episode he's referring to. This is dated uh, May 20th of last year, so I'm not exactly sure which one. Uh, It may be the first Phantom Zone episode. I'm not really sure. He says, um, that Lana Lang was all kinds of crazy. Yes, she was. I also liked your inclusion of the Superman Returns version of the Leaves the Fortress music. Would it be sacrilege to say I prefer that to the original? Yes, Andy. Yes, it would. <laughs> Although I really I really like that version. And, you know, I really like that soundtrack. Superman Returns is a fantastic soundtrack. You know, say what you want about the movie. But the score is great to that movie. I really like, especially, of course, the whole saving the airplane uh, sequence in that. So, uh, but yeah, it would be sacrilege to say it's better. <laughs> Uh, lastly, Andy just wraps up. He says, uh, keep pumping out these shows. Best Andy Leyland. And uh, I intend to, Andy, I really am making a concerted effort to be much more frequent with this particular show this year. Um, because I just feel like I should be so much further ahead on this project. I'm really, now that I've kind of found what I really want to talk about, the Phantom Zone, I just feel like, you know, I should be pumping these out much more frequently because I'm really fired up about this. So that's going to be my mission. Anyway, 
Moving right along, the next one is uh, entitled here uh, regarding the Funeral of Superman episodes. And this one also goes back quite a ways. Uh, this one's May 21st, 25th. What was the date on the other one? May, what did I say? The 20th? Yeah, this is the very next day. All right, and this one is from Kirk. Uh, Kirk, you're going to have to forgive me if I butcher your name. I'm going to say Gruen Gruenveld. I hope that is correct. And Kirk writes in and he says, uh, Hey, Scott, he's, I, I decided... Uh, to back up and listen to some of the earlier I've Got Something to Say shows. To my delight, I'm discovering you did the whole arc when Soup's... Oh, I hate when people call him Soup's. No offense, Kirk. Uh, contracts Virus X. I remember flipping through these issues in 1968 as they came out. Wow. Okay. Well, I was actually born in 68, Kirk, so it sounds like you uh, you have the advantage on me. He says, the creepy green slime on Soup's hands... Drew me in uh, enough to skim the issues when searching for the latest Marvels. Hey, kid, you gotta buy the the Saint in the Library, you know. <laughs> it says anyway, the show carries very well despite only one voice, because your enthusiasm is very good and conveys very well. Well, thank you very much. I re I appreciate that. Now, this next portion of your letter uh, amused me greatly. It says I recently saw a photo of you from ACBC Expo, and I was very surprised that you looked nothing like what I imagined. I imagine that's because you probably were seeing pictures of Chris Honeywell. <laughs> I, I did not actually attend ACBC. Uh, so or actually, it may have been, I think Scott McGregor was at that. So I, I could see where that could cause some confusion as well. But I yeah, I did not actually attend that expo. So I'm not sure whose picture you saw. But that's why I look nothing like what you imagined. Not that the reality is probably that much better. <laughs> says, uh, something like the guy who looks most like Soup's on the cover of Action 366. I, you know what? I should have taken a moment to look that up. I, I don't know who you're referring to. Uh, at least, that's what you sounded like. Easily one of the better voices on the Two True Freaks Network and very much an entertainer. Oh, well, thank you. I, I appreciate that very much. I consider it a, a high compliment when I get complimented on uh, on the work that I do on these shows. So thank you very much says, I'm enjoying skipping about and listening to the various installments. But fine, I can only download them one at a time because my MP3 player, for some reason, won't sort them and allow me to listen to them in order. That's probably more our fault than yours because, oh, I'll confess right up front, I don't think that in the history of doing the Two True Freaks, anything Two True Freaks related that either I or Chris Honeywell have put out personally, I don't think that we've really made the, the best effort to make sure that our naming is consistent so that you know they they wind up on listening devices in in a proper listening order i've tried to be better about that in more recent times but i know when we first started out when i would download them myself frequently they'd wind up in any sort of order at all so i, I do apologize about that uh let's see back to kirk's letter he says uh so i have to listen to them out of order that's okay because i already uh, knew the twist ending from years ago. Oh yes, while I'm thinking of it, I did check to see who drew the disliked cover to Action 365. It was Ross Andrew instead of Neil Adams um, from all the rest of the arc. You were right. Enjoying your Phantom... And, yeah, I can't talk. Enjoying your Phantom Zone research. Keep it up. And again, that's from Kirk G is how he signed it here. And again, Kirk, I do apologize if I butchered your name, buddy. Uh, send me a pronunciation guide on that if I did not get it right. Moving right along, we have one from my good buddy Russell Bragg, and he writes, 
I've got a few things to say about Superman episode 12. This was from June of last year, so I'm getting closer. It says, welcome back, Scott, to this podcast, I mean. Great episode and great topic. I always enjoyed Phantom Zone stories, and I will be excited to take this historical journey with you. I believe that all of the trade paperbacks you, or excuse me, I believe I have all the trade paperbacks you mentioned, so I have read the stories talked about. I think I even Facebook messaged you about the Adventure Comics cover. It was a great episode, and I eagerly await the next installment. Keep up the great work, and that's from Russell Bragg, Clarksburg, West Virginia, host of the DC Comics Presents show. Thank you very much, Russell. I appreciate that. And this is one I've been looking forward to. This is what actually prompted me to go and uh, look through the... um, the emails again. I, I confess I didn't do that before I sat down to record last time and I felt really bad about that. And I had heard that, Hey, I sent you feedback and you apparently didn't get it or something. So I sought this one out and this is what prompted me to go in and find that, Hey, I actually have a bunch of feedback that I can cover. This one is from my good friend, Mike Biblio, Mike Petit in, is it Havertown? Mike, is that how you pronounce it? Havertown PA. And uh, he says, feedback for I've Got a Few Things, episodes 12 and 13. He says, Dear Snark McGill, if that is your real name, I didn't know, or excuse me, I don't know, rather, how I missed your Superman show's comeback, but I have now caught up with your last two episodes and wanted to congratulate you. I enjoyed both episodes thoroughly, not only for the stories you covered, but also the top-notch way in which you covered them. You know, I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Because this is very much stream of consciousness the last episode i put out number 14 there's no editing on, on that episode i mean other than cutting out myself going test test one two three to make sure my mic is working and then you know of course adding on the opener adding on the closer at the very end of the episode in between no editing whatsoever so i appreciate when you, know, you guys say the way you that you like the way i'm doing this show i'm still not a hundred percent sold on it myself frequently because when i listen back to it i'm like Should I cut out that part where I stumbled over my words and that sort of thing? But I I think it's at the same rate it conveys a certain energy to the show. I'm trying to be very upbeat and and positive with the show, but I kind of like the stream of consciousness thing. The the problem with it, though, the other problem with it is I also listen back to it and I'm like, oh, man, I forgot to talk about this. Or I started talking about this and then I distracted myself and started talking about this other thing and never went back and finished my thought and all those sorts of things. So, of course, you know, you're always gonna only hear the flaws and things like that on projects like this uh you know speaking for myself but uh, i do appreciate it when other people say that they're they're digging what i'm doing anyway back to this uh mike says the use of music in episode 12 was especially nice i wish i could remember episode 12 (laughs) i'm gonna have to go back and listen to it to see what you're talking about mike says i think the idea of an ultimate uh phantom zone primer is an awesome one. Wish I'd thought of it. Um, I wish somebody else had thought of it before me, Mike, because I'm going to talk about this in, in just a moment when I'm done with the feedback section, but it's been fun yet challenging. Uh, there doesn't seem to be, so far as I can determine, a, a, gr- a guide out there, like a definitive Phantom Zone anything. So this podcast may actually end up filling that niche. I don't know. Anyway, I, I'll want to talk about that in a moment. Let me get back to your letter. He says, although I don't have as long a history as a Superman fan as you do, the zone has always intrigued me as it, uh, as it has you. Unlike you, I'm certain my first exposure to it was via the 1978 Christopher Reeve movie. 
I found Marlon Brando's prosecution of Terrence Stamp and his partners in crime riveting every time I watched the movie. And yes, I was one of those kids who also misheard General Zod shouting about Jor-El's ass bowing down before him. <laughs> I, you know, I've since Michael Bailey and I talked about, at least I think it was Michael Bailey and I that talked about that. might have been Chris Honeywell and I, but anyway, whoever it was, since the episode where we talked about that, I have, you know, I have had a lot of people tell me that 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 was funny because they had the same thing. So we are definitely not alone. I think a lot of people thought Zod was saying he wanted Jor-El's ass to bow down before him. So that's very funny. Uh, I love the Phantom Zone special effect and still do. It's not clear how it works exactly, but it sure looks cool uh, as it does whatever it's doing. I was glad to see the basic uh, that basic visual was retained in the Smallville TV series. Oh, was it? I, I did not know that. I knew that the Phantom Zone came up on Smallville, but uh, I had long bailed on the show uh, by that time. Uh, I might have to go back and look at that, actually. That would be really cool. Uh, something about that flat triangular plane of intergalactic glass is downright creepy. Seeing Zod, Ursa, and Nan pounding against it as Baby Clell's starship uh, streaks uh, streaks by always gave me the chills. So cheers for you for taking on this topic and teaching fans like me who primarily know about the Zone from the movies more of its history. Well, you know, it's funny. I thought I knew a lot about the Phantom Zone. Because it was one of those things that fascinated me about Superman lore when I was a kid. But just doing what I've done so far in these episodes is really teaching me a lot. And, and teaching me how much I didn't know. So, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying this just as much as you are. Says, I enjoyed your retellings of all the issues you've covered so far. Especially your deconstruction of the Mon-El story. I also enjoyed these episodes because uh, I read all these stories with my son when he was about six or seven years old. I could remember us laughing together at certain panels as you described the action. Once, uh, one you missed, though, in the first Phantom Zone story was Superboy's use of the word yonder. Neither my son or I could believe any 1950s teenager would use that word. Hmm, really? I always figured that, you know, with Superboy essentially being a hick you know i mean he grew up in in smallville which again smallville seems to be kind of nebulous and undefined as exactly where it is so maybe i'm backwards projecting uh superman the movie on this but i always took smallville to be middle america so and just the way the town seems to function and and everything i very much look at ma and pa and the and the residents of smallville as being a bunch of hillbillies you know in, in a strange sort of way so yonder didn't, didn't really strike me as unusual but I, I guess you've got a point uh he might continue series says he's not a huge superman fan today uh, but we did bond over the boy and Man of Steel quite a bit in years past. Incidentally, not to start any debates or rants, but this summer he did watch both Man of Steel and Superman 1978 with me and agreed with me that the Christopher Reeve film was the better one. So there is yet hope for quote-unquote kids these days. Well, good for him and good for you. That's good parenting, Mike. Uh, says you've uh, glad you've brought back the show, Scott. Sorry, Snark. And I'm looking forward to all the episodes to come. And that, again, that's from Mike Bibio, Mike Petit in Havertown, Pennsylvania. Thank very, thank you very much, Mike. I really appreciate you writing in. I'm gl really glad that you're enjoying the show. 
And let's see, I think I have one more. Yes, this one is very recent. So now we're all caught up. This one is from January 12th. So if uh, if you wrote into the show and you didn't hear me read your feedback, that means that uh, some time-space warp thing has opened and your missive fell into the Phantom Zone. So please feel free to shoot it off to me again because this is all I've got. This is the last one and most recent one. And this one is also from Kirk Grunveld. Man, I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, and this one is entitled Knave of Superboy. It says, Scott, I must have missed the prior 12th episode of I've Got a Few Things to Say because uh, you refer to a show that I don't know. But to answer your question about the Knave, no, it was not in cu- common usage at the time. I was, I had asked the question in the prior episode, did, did kids in the 60s even know what a Knave was? And uh, so he's answering this question. He says, however, as a lad of five in 1961, I wasn't reading comics yet, but my older sister was reading cast-offs from our cousins, which included these issues. I didn't know what a knave was, so I asked. I think my mom looked it up in a dictionary, and I was told it was an archaic term for a young lad, uh, but also used in cards as another reference to a jack in any suit. Okay, see, that's that's mainly how I know it. I mean, I, I, I knew it was an earth word, but in the novels, um, oh God, I'm blanking on the name of the author, but there were three Lando Calrissian novels when I was a kid that came out right after The Empire Strikes Back and before Return of the Jedi. It was a, it was a trilogy of Lando Calrissian adventures. And in that, we learn more about the game um, Sabak or Sabak, however you want to pronounce it, the the card game that Lando um, lost the Falcon. It's either he lost the Falcon to Han Solo playing that game, or he won Cloud City playing that game. One of the two, I forget. But anyway, it was a card game established in Star Wars. In those novels, you learn more about that game, and one of the suits in that game was called the Knave of something or the something of knaves or something like that. And that's mostly what I knew it from. So it's interesting, as you say here, that it refers to uh, a jack uh, in any suit of cards. So yeah, that that's that fits, totally. Uh, he continues here, he says, and Kirk continues, he says, So we were as stumped as you were by this. Thought you'd like to know. <laughs> Kirk, and, uh, you know, Kirk, I thought you were a podcaster, and I see here you, you have it signed on this one. Kirk is the host of Imperious Rex, Confessions of a Serial Surface Invader, a show all about Namor the Submariner. So I uh, wanted to make sure I got that shout out there. And that catches us up for feedback. Again, thank you to everybody that wrote in. I really, really do appreciate it. So moving right along in this, you know, I was mentioning a moment ago, um, you know, the way I'm doing the show, stream of consciousness style and all that with few notes and all that, it's easy to listen back to the show later and and really catch myself and regret that I didn't go more in depth about things. And one of the things that I was really surprised I didn't spend more time talking about was Jack Sir, who was really the, the new big thing last episode that gets introduced into Phantom Zone lore. I love this guy, and I don't know if I really made a big enough deal about Jack Sir. I, I think Jack Sir is is cool. And the big thing about Jaxer, I think I think he is the one that deserves to be the guy. You know, I think he's the one that deserves to be the face of the Phantom Zone. 
because I could be wrong. I'm going to sort of kind of track this as we move along through this, uh, this history of the Phantom Zone. But to my mind, Jaxer was kind of the guy up until the Superman movie, you know, the Christopher Reeve movie came out. And then suddenly because of Terrence Stamp's, you know, wonderful portrayal of General Zod, especially in the second film where, you know, it was him and, and Ursa and Nan were, were the big bads, you know, then General Zod becomes the default guy. But I think you're going to see as we go through this history that that was not always the case. As a matter of fact, up to where we are right now, we've only seen Zod the one time. And he wasn't even the original zoner. The original zoner in that very first story, at least the first one introduced, was Dr. Zadu. And that's really funny because Dr. Zadu, over time we're going to see, drops to the extreme background of Phantom Zone characters. That, that'll that take some time to happen, but eventually that will happen. And really it becomes the, the forefront guys really comes down to Jaxer, Zod, um, and a couple others that will, will be introduced later on. I don't want to spoil too much ahead, but really it's Jaxer. In doing the research for this, I found that he really has the most appearances of, of any of the Phantom Zoners, at least from what I can, can see so far. Again, I haven't tracked it. I haven't added things up or whatever. But just in flipping through the history, one of the things that really helped me compile my list was simply just tracking Jaxer and his appearances. So that kind of leads into something else I wanted to talk about that I don't know that I really went into much so far is kind of how I'm doing this project. Now, I beg you guys, the listeners, that if you know of a definitive list of Phantom Zone stories, please clue me in because I couldn't find one. I have dug all over the place trying to find like the definitive lists. And I find lists of stories or lists of character appearances, but I'm not finding like anywhere on the net that calls itself like, this is it. This is the Phantom Zone resource. I didn't find that. And that was a little bit frustrating. So I had to build it myself. And I have largely built it myself by using available resources. And one of the big available resources for me, of course, was Mike's Amazing World. You know, Mike has an incredible site and it's it's very user-friendly. It's very easy to use. And it was very easy to track particular characters. Again, like Jack Sir, like Zod, Dr. Zadu, and, and use that. Um, I also used other sites like Comic Book Database and different ones for, again, tracking the different characters. And then I just did a, a, a ton of Google searches for Phantom Zone to see what I could find. But I, as will come up in one of the stories that we're going to be talking about today, there does seem to be a disconnect between stories. So by no means am I saying that my list is the definitive list because I will not be at all surprised if someone was to write in and go, hey, dude, you missed this story. Because, again, I couldn't find a definitive resource. So I'm really relying on the research I've done and the research of, that others have done based on you know different web uh, web-based resources for comics. So... Uh, that's a long way of saying that 
I don't know if my list is complete. I'm hoping it is, and I'm kind of playing it that it is, just for sake of my own sanity. But again, please do not hesitate to write in and let me know if you know of a story that I end up missing as we go along through this, because I really do want to be authoritative. And if no true resource for the Phantom Zone does exist, then I think it would kind of be cool if I become that resource. So, you know kind of a side effect and not not at all the intended mission but that'll be kind of cool if that ends up happening that way <sighs> okay so with all that out of the way we are ready to talk some phantom zone so we've got a couple of interesting ones this time around we have kind of a short story to start off with and then a uh, a more um regular length adventure so we're going to go ahead we're going to jump right into this and the first book that we are looking at today is this actually takes us to 1962. So we're changing years. Well, at least sort of. We're going to be looking at Superman number 150. This is cover dated January 1962. However, uh, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, it was actually on sale November 7th, 1961. So we've kind of changed years and kind of haven't changed years. Original cover price on this one, a whopping 12 sense now the cover on this one is by kurt swan and george klein but as it does not play into the story that we're talking about inside i'm really just going to ignore it um for reference for those of you that are well versed on superman it's the one where he's balancing by one finger on a tight wire over the city streets so that that's the issue that we're talking about but again that's not the story that we're going to do so we're skipping past that now this is the first story in the book and it is entitled The One Minute of Doom. It was written by Superman co-creator Jerry Siegel, uh, uncredited. Artist on this is Al Plastino. And of course, this is the Mort Weisinger era of Superman. So he is the editor on this. So the uh, cover, or the um, story copy here reads, Inside Superman's Fortress of Solitude stand three silent figures. And the silent figures are, of course, Superman his cousin Supergirl, and Crypto the Superdog. So sadly watching this a second hand slowly moving across the face of a fantastic clock. And this clock is super weird. I think they're trying to go for a sci-fi feel, like making the clock uh, different from a regular Earth clock. They're trying to make it spacey, and it just comes off as kind of silly, to be honest with you. Says, why do Superman, Supergirl, and Crypto look so sorrowful? Can you guess? Read on, and you will find the answer in the story of the One Minute of Doom. So our story starts out as this tornado is roaring menacingly toward Metropolis, and that just struck me as kind of weird. Um, again, where the heck is Metropolis supposed to be during this time? But I just thought that was kind of weird that uh, a tornado of all things. I mean, does New York City ever get menaced by tornadoes? I'll have to ask my buddy Paul Spataro, but not that I remember ever hearing. But anyway, this tornado is ripping towards the place. We get this guy going, we're doomed. <laughs> it's a big goofy shot of him. Superman sets up a, uh, a counter spin. He essentially uses his body as a, as a human top and spins himself at super speed counterclockwise with the rotation of the tornado and basically diffuses the whole thing. The, the citizens are very happy and they're cheering him. Hooray for Superman and everything. But Superman just has this dour look on his face. He says, sorry, but I must hurry to keep an appointment and he streaks off. 
And after he goes, there's uh, two guys are talking and he says, he looked terribly sad. I wonder why. And the other guy says, well, maybe because of his special appointment. Simultaneously out in outer space, Superman's super dog Crypto actually uses his superpowers and his heat vision and everything and builds himself, oh dear Lord, the Doghouse of Solitude. Now, I'm wondering if this is actually the first appearance of the Doghouse of Solitude. I did not look that up because I'm only mildly curious about that. Um, I have sort of a love-hate thing going on with Crypto. I I love Crypto. I do. I mean, he's a big part of my childhood, reading these comics and everything. He's a neat concept. I mean, every boy has his dog. I, you know, I love my dog dearly and everything, but... Sometimes Crypto's just a little too... He's a little too people, if you know what I mean. Um, he should be more of a dog. And, you know, the fact that he thinks and... Uh, it, it's just, it gets a little silly. So, anyway, he's very proud of himself. And uh, he built his doghouse of solitude. And he's thinking to himself, he says, pretty slick, huh? But suddenly... As he's about to go into his new doghouse, he goes, uh, Op! He says... I don't know what a special or sound effect that's supposed to be, but he says, <laughs> I just remembered a certain special appointment choke got to go back to Earth now. So he also is, is streaking off to this appointment that Superman was referring to. Meanwhile, back on Earth, Supergirl swims under sea and she uses her super senses to reveal that some kids using expensive fishing equipment are taunting a raggedly dressed barefoot boy who's fishing with a bamboo pole. Does she really have nothing better to do? Somewhere in the world, someone must be hanging off a cliff, or there's a war breaking out, or a robbery, or it's something. She really has nothing better to do than to swim underwater and spy on fisher people. All right, whatever. So, she takes a liking to this poor picked-on kid, and she actually takes his hook, hooks it in the mouth of a whale, and then throws the whale on shore as if the kid had hooked it himself so that the other two fishermen that are making fun of him are astounded by the fact that um, yeah, he caught a whale. This is so wrong on so many levels. This poor whale. Now, what happens to this whale? Does it die? It can't get back in the water? Do, I mean, do they actually cut it up and eat it? I mean, what happens to this poor whale who wasn't doing anything? Come on, Supergirl. Whales are mammals, man. Get with the... Oh, it's just... It's so wrong. But, you know, Star Trek Four was, what, 23 years in its future? So, yeah. All right. <sighs> anyway. So, out of the ocean... She super streaks and uh, suddenly has the thought, oh, it's time for the special appointment. So she's part of this whole thing too. So shortly, three flying forms converge towards Superman's Arctic Fortress of Solitude. And Supergirl and Crypto watch as Superman picks up the giant key that is disguised as an airplane marker. I've never seen a giant key disguised as an airplane marker in my life. So I don't know if that's a thing, but we're just going to roll with it. He uses his giant key, unlocks the fortress, and soon inside the fortress, Superman, Supergirl, and Crypto stand before the shrunken city of Kandor, sadly observing one minute of silence. 
And Superman thinks to himself, and he says, Choke, today is our special memorial day. It is the anniversary of the destruction of Krypton, the planet of our origin. And I like this. I think this is really neat. I'm wondering, was this ever shown again at any point? Did this become a thing? Because I really don't remember this. But I I like this idea. And inside Kandor, I love this picture inside Kandor. You have all these Kandorians, you know, dressed very futuristically. And, you know, they have their futuristic buildings. There's something running between one of the buildings. I don't know if it's a walkway or a monorail track or whatever it is. It's really cool. Everything's super futuristic. And then right in the middle of the town square, you have one of those big old-timey clocks on a, on a pedestal. And it just kind of takes me out of it. It's like, okay, super futuristic and wait, 1800s. You know, it just, it looks really strange. But uh, all the Kandorians, it is perfectly quiet. They're all standing around um, with their heads bowed uh, to commemorate the death of their world uh, on which their city had originally existed and everything. And Superman has a little flashback to when his parents put him in the rocket and sent him off to Earth. Supergirl has a flashback to when Krypton blew up and as part of the chain reaction, a large chunk of the planet was hurled away, uh, which was Argo City, which was where she would eventually be born and eventually come to Earth. And so her everybody's origins being recapped. Even Crypto has a flashback and it recaps his origin, how Jor-El, Superman's father, had put uh crypto into an experimental rocket and later a meteor knocked it off course and years later it would come to earth blah 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 we get everything here we get uh even a recap on how candor wound up in superman's fortress how it wound up as a bottle city where we see a super creepy weird looking brainiac uh in a flash <clears throat> excuse me in a flashback as he's actually uh reducing the city and everything and then we go back to the candorians and a couple of the Kandorians are thinking to themselves, and uh, one of them sa- is thinking, and he says, After defeating uh, Brainiac in battle, Superman placed our bottle city in his fortress of solitude for safekeeping. And another Kandorian is thinking, No Kandorian will ever forget our glorious Kryptonian heritage. Here's the reason why we're covering this story. Then it says, And even in the Phantom Zone, where all criminals of Krypton have been exiled to exist in a state, uh, in a disembodied state like weird ghosts. And we see five, five Phantom Zone villains standing around. Four of them are men. Excuse me, wait a minute. I can't count. One, two, three, four. No, okay. I, no, I can count. All right, so four of them are men. And most of them are just, you know, they have their heads bowed. They're looking very solemn and everything. But one of them is actually putting his hand up to his face. And he he looks like he's actually wiping away tears. He's saying, choke, even we regret the death of Krypton. What's really interesting about this panel is, as I said, there's five people there, four of which are men. So there's a woman. We are seeing our first female zoner. Unfortunately, she's not named. And she doesn't say anything. She doesn't think anything. So we have no idea who this person is. She's just an unidentified zoner. And she really doesn't look like any zoner that we will see later. She looks very much like uh, like a black and white version. She could be Superman's mother, for all we know. I mean, she looks very much like a black and white Lara. So that she doesn't really have any distinguishing characteristics. 
and this is going to bother me. We don't know who this uh, who this Phantom Zoner is, but I think it's very interesting that we're we're seeing finally, finally, that there are many people in the Phantom Zone. That it's not just a, a couple of villains. It's it's a lot of people. So in this one panel, we're getting five. Next panel, we finally catch back up with the original Phantom Zoner himself, Doctor Zadu. And Dr. Zadu thinks to himself, he says, I, Dr. Zadu, was given a 30-year sentence. I want to make a point of saying this. 30-year sentence in the Phantom Zone because I once made a forbidden experiment in suspended animation. Uh, But now I can't ever return to Krypton. And the guy next to him, which may or may not be the guy that was wiping tears away from his face, it's really hard to tell, is thinking to himself... Never can any of us go back to our native planet. It no longer exists. So I want to take a moment to discuss these two panels and actually the preceding panel. So with these three panels, first you've got the two the two Kandorians that are reminiscing about how their city came to be in a bottle. They're thinking their thoughts. They're not speaking out loud, but... They're looking directly at us, the reader, and kind of bringing us up to speed on this. And it seems like their thoughts kind of follow one another. Because the one guy says, you know, after defeating Superman, or defeating Brainiac, rather, blah, 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 placed in the Bottle City. And the other guy says, no Kandorian will ever forget, and blah, blah, blah. So their thoughts almost follow on top of each other. Okay. So then you get into the zone. And you have Dr. Zadu doing his whole thing about how he can never go back to Krypton. And the guy next to us says, never can any of us go back to our native planet. So what I'm thinking here is that you could make a pretty good argument for and against this being the first telepathy in the Phantom Zone. Now, as a kid growing up, by the time I discovered the Phantom Zone and really got into Phantom Zone stories, that was the established communication method in the Phantom Zone. The Phantom Zoners communicated with each other by telepathy. This is important because the, to my mind, the definitive Phantom Zone story, the four-issue Phantom Zone series by by Steve Gerber and Gene Colan, telepathy p- plays a big part in that story because that's how the Zoners eventually get released from the Zone. Spoiler alert. So, that that will become the default method, but we haven't seen that yet, and we won't really see that become a thing for a while yet. But I'm thinking that, again, arguably, an argument could be made that, that this is kind of the first time, because their thoughts do follow on top of one another. But then, so do the Kandorians in, in the Bottle City as well. Their thoughts kind of follow on top of each other, if you know what I mean. So, like I say, you can make an argument for and against. And I'd be very curious, um, any of you that want to uh, write in and, and give your thoughts on that. What do you think? You know, is, is it a good argument for? Is it a good argument against? What do you think? Anyway, we do continue on in the story. We see the stupid uh, Bizarro world, and they're all celebrating and everything. I hate the Bizarros. We go back to the Fortress of Solitude. And Supergirl is using her microscopic vision. She sees that, uh, you know, the Kandorians resume their activity and everything. The minute goes by. And Superman breaks the silence by saying, what a pity that Krypton perished. And Supergirl comforts him. She says, what's done is done, Superman. No amount of tears or regret can change the unchangeable. 
But Superman, he's kind of inconsolable about this, and and it's really bothering him. He says, I still can't help regretting that Krypton, with its highly advanced super scientific civilization, can't live again. Wait, perhaps in a sense, it can live once more. Listen to my idea. And, you know, I wish this story had just stopped here. Because I like this story. I I, I really, I, I think this is nice. I think it's a wonderful sentiment. But the story should stop right here. But it doesn't. So the three of them, Superman, Supergirl, and Crypto, they streak off into outer space, and soon they find in a distant solar system a huge uninhabited world that's pretty much the right size. Hmm. Well, this begs the question, then. Skipping the whole Red Sun thing for a moment, one wasn't one of the many explanations for Superman's powers, at least in some variations of Superman's origin, the fact that Krypton and Earth were of different sizes? So if they're going to a planet that's exactly the right size for Krypton, then what should happen to their superpowers? Should they be affected? Should they be diminished? Should they be removed? Eh, It kind of gets into a weird gray area. And it never does mention the sun of this system. It just says distant solar system. And we don't see the sun for this system. So they're, they're kind of skirting that whole thing. Anyway, long story short, because this doesn't really pertain to the Phantom Zone, I'm going to wrap this one up. Supergirl, Superman, and Crypto, completely guided by their photographic memories, build an exact duplicate of Krypton. Yeah, you heard me right. Loving this story up to this point, and this is where the story just completely falls apart. Because, come on. I'm going to just call a spade a spade. That's dumb. That is so dumb. I mean, they were, you know, he was an infant for one thing. She never even lived on Krypton, right? I am right about that, right? Wasn't she? She was born on Argo City after the destruction of Krypton, right? Somebody write in and let me know that I'm right on that. But I'm pretty sure I'm right on that. And Krypto's a friggin' dog. He's a dog. So, yeah, that's, that's silly. That's really silly. Plus... This would presuppose that Kal-El, as a, as a child, as an infant, was taken everywhere on the planet. And I'm not talking just like to see the sights. I'm talking like, you know, he went in every closet and behind every door and in every room and every house. And Come on. It's really silly. It's, you know. I could see if they just wanted to build like a memorial or something. But they're building an exact duplicate of the planet. An exact duplicate to the point that, if I'm not mistaken, this is Krypton 2. And we'll see Krypton 2 again in a story where Superman comes there and doesn't even realize it is Krypton 2. He thinks he's back on Krypton. Again, I could be wrong about that. That is going way back in the old snark memory, but I'm pretty sure that's a thing. So yeah, it's just, it's flat silly. It's really flat silly. And it's a little creepy because then, not only do they recreate Krypton... They build an android factory of synthetic men and women that, uh, it says here, can exist by eating raw chemicals. Ew. So now they have actually peopled the planet. And they actually recreated their parents. So they recreated Jarell and Lara and whatever Supergirl's parents' names are. I can't remember off the top of my head. Zorel and Allura, I think. And so Superman and Supergirl actually go spend time with their parents being, you know, hugged and loved all over and everything. It's just creepy weird. I mean, I, I guess it's supposed to be sweet and, and a wonderful sentiment, but I don't I don't find it that way at all. I think it's bizarre. 
So eventually, and God only knows how long they spend on this planet, it doesn't say, it just says later, uh, as the uh, Super Trio prepares to leave, Supergirl congratulates Superman. She's like, creating a memorial planet was a beautiful idea, Superman. And he says, I loved every minute of it here. And as they streak back towards Earth, Superman says, we'll return here each year on the anniversary of the death of Krypton. And she waves and she says, till we meet again, she's waving at a planet. All right. And that's the end, thankfully. I do like this story. Don't get me wrong. It's just the ending is so dumb. Plus, whatever becomes of Krypton 2... I can't remember. Something tells me that maybe they did like a, like one of those really far out silver agey irony stories where Krypton two also blew up or something. But if they didn't, if I'm wrong about that and Krypton two did survive, then why didn't Superman take the Kandorians there when he eventually enlarged the bottle city? Maybe because by that point, somebody realized that Krypton 2 was a really dumb idea. I, I don't, I really don't know, but I don't want to spend too long belittling the story in that aspect because I really do like the story. It's just that that ending is just, that's a bridge too far for me. Plus, again, you know, how many buses full of nuns and orphans are plummeting off cliffs somewhere while these three are off screwing around on this other planet? I hate that. I, I, that's the thing I always think about is when Superman's goofing off like this, you know, what disasters are happening back on earth, you know, earthquakes are happening and killing thousands of people and he's off building Krypton too. It just, uh, drives me nuts. Anyway, uh, let's see. I did have some specific notes on this again. First female zoner really wish we had a name or something on her. Um, I do not believe that she plays into other female zoners that we will eventually see. But I like this idea that now we are showing that the Phantom Zone is peopled. There's potentially as many as nine zoners now. If you count the guy that's standing next to Zadu as a separate person from the four men that are in the previous panel, because again, I can't tell if he's one of those guys or not. Arguably, he could be the guy that's crying in the previous panel, but it's really hard to tell. So if he's not, then that's seven zoners right there. And then you have to throw in Jaxer, who we've now met, and General Zod, who is not in this issue. So that's nine. And then, of course, you have Monel. But, of course, I understand why Monel is not in this because, yes, he's a Phantom Zoner, but he has no direct connection to Krypton. So, again, as many as nine Phantom Zoners now. So we're, we're beefing up the, uh, you know, the denizens of the Phantom Zone. Also, uh, again, I just want to point out one more time that this story reaffirms Zaydu's uh, sentence of 30 years. And I point this out because it's about to change. And again, arguably uh, first telepathy. Something I have realized uh, listening again to last episode and prior episodes, I have not been the greatest about pointing out where these stories can be found. And I'm really going to work hard to, uh, to amend that. I was quite surprised to find that this story is reprinted in Best of DC number 59. That's the one that has the cover of Superman standing next to a very tall Superman statue that's not 100% right. Like it's off a little bit. The S is different and stuff. And it, the cover says Super Saga or Superman Sagas, I think it says. And I think the cover's by. I want to say Frank Miller. I'm not sure on that. But anyway, you, you may know the one I'm talking about. This is from 1985. Best of DC, number 59. 
the reason I was surprised to find that that story is in there is I have that. And I'm pretty sure I read that as a kid. Have no memory of ever reading this story before. I, To my mind, this was my first time reading it as I was doing this research. So at some point I must have read it before. I just did not remember ever reading it before. But anyway, I really like this one. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, also reprinted in Showcase Presents Superman Volume 3 Trade Paperback from 2007. So I hope you like that one. I'm going to take a quick drink and then we're going to move right on to the very next story here. All right, Action Comics number 284 was also cover dated January 1962. So both of these issues were were on the stands pretty much at the same time. Uh, on sale date is November 30th, 1961. This one has a cover that is by Kurt Swan and Sheldon Maldoff. And the cover on this one does pertain to the story inside where we see a police desk sergeant sitting at his desk and there's another cop standing nearby and Superman is actually super baby, essentially super tyke. And he's thinking to himself, I must convince them that I'm the adult Superman in a child's body. And so how does he convince them? He smashes their desk, which is not at all a nice thing to do, Superman. Surely you could come up with something else. Just the fact that you are flying, I would think, might convince them that you're super somehow. But anyway, he says, I'm not a child, Lieutenant. I'm Superman. See? And he's smashing the desk. And the the desk sergeant is kind of jumping back. And it's weird that he's calling him a lieutenant. Do lieutenants work the desk? I don't think so. He says, Superman, I must be seeing things. How can this kid be Superman? Come on, are you this dumb? He looks like Superman. Granted, he's a baby. He's wearing Superman's outfit, and he's flying! Anyway, it says, featuring the Babe of Steel. Original cover price on this, again, 12 pennies. Writer on this one is Robert Bernstein, who or Bernstein, who I'm going to be talking about a bit um, after we get through the synopsis on this and everything, because I discovered some cool things about him, or at least some things I thought were cool recently. Uh, penciler on this one is Kurt Swan, although, you know, it really doesn't look, uh, well, it doesn't, it doesn't. There's a lot of instances in this where it actually, um, looks much more like, um, um, oh gosh, what's his name? Wayne Boring to me, especially the, the opening splash really looks like Wayne Boring to me, but it's, uh, Kurt Swan and inked by George Klein. And again, editor during this time was, uh, Mort Weisinger. So jumping right into this one, you've all seen Super Baby in action. And laughed at his super cuteness. Well, maybe. Uh, while you marveled at his superpowers. Well, one day, a different kind of quote-unquote super baby appears in Metropolis. Not a uh, super might young in years, but only young in appearance. His mind and emotions, still that of an adult, the Man of Steel, becomes pint-sized in order to battle a strange peril. We defy you to guess the reason why the mighty Superman transforms himself into... The Babe of steel okay strap in because this one gets really silly so on the opening splash page we see superman granted he's baby sized and he's carrying a battleship and he comes flying in and uh these two uh navy men are, are quite stunned by this sight and he says superman has saved our battleship but look how small he's become Superman, what's happened to you? You've been reduced to baby size. And Superman's thinking to himself, yes, I deliberately changed my stature 
to that of a baby boy because it's the only way I can handle a terrible emergency that will soon arise. And as it turns out, not true at all, Superman, because I thought of a different way you could have done this, but we'll get to that. So one day in Metropolis, as Planet reporter Clark Kent, who is secretly Superman, yes, I knew that, attends a seance. So he has, really? This, this is what they're paying him for, to attend seances. Well, it turns out he's at this seance. He's actually there with other newsmen that have been invited there to witness the amazing powers of Madam whatever her name is. It's not really important. Um, they, they quickly expose her as a fraud, which Clark knew right away by using his super senses, which I'm like, that's both cool and like... You know, I can't imagine what would it be like to go with Superman to like like a theme park or something. You know, it's like you'd have to tell him, okay, look, you can't use your X-ray vision. You know, you're not allowed to use your super hearing or what. Can you just go with it? Can you just have a good time? But he through this whole thing, he's he's using his super senses and immediately realizes that you know she's all all hokum. Anyway. One of the things that she's putting on is this uh, this disembodied hand that appears from nowhere and writes messages on a chalkboard behind her. And Clark quickly realizes that it's actually just her assistant using some sort of phosphorescent makeup on his arm. Uh, however, that works. So anyway, again, it's not really that important. But the important part of this is, as they're all leaving... And all of the newspapermen are quite funny because they're all thinking thoughts like, you know, well, I'll be nice to her, but as soon as I get back to the office, I'm going to write up a whole story about how, you know, what a phony she is. Clark realizes that he forgot his hat. So he goes back in to get his hat and he sees a hand coming out of nowhere that looks just like the other hand, but using his super senses, he realized, hey, this is no trick. This is, this is real. And he sees this hand come out of nowhere and begin to write on the chalkboard. And the hand writes, attention, Superman. So now he's shocked. And he says, great, Krypton, it's writing a message to Superman. Then whoever the writer is, he knows Clark Kent is Superman. So shortly, as the hand starts to disappear, the word balloon that we're seeing, or excuse me, the thought balloon, rather, from Clark Kent that we're seeing actually blocks out part of the message so superman sees the message but we the readers are not privy to the entire message all we see is attention superman you're in great peril and then beyond that you can't really read the rest of it so he thinks to himself this is terribly important news according to the way the rest of the message reads there's only one way to handle the emergency i've got to turn myself (laughs) into a baby okay Whatever, Superman. Again, I, I did think of a different way that you could have handled this, but okay, what whatever. You know, I can go along with a gag. So, he erases the message, of course, and then it shows him he goes to Perry White's office, and Perry White, he, he he's awesome, I guess. So we see in this panel, he's putting his arm around Clark, around Clark, and he says, of course, Clark, you have two weeks vacation coming to you. And if you want to take it now, you have my permission. I want a job at the Daily Planet, because I don't know if this is just the way things were in 1961, but they ain't the way that things are today. Because it's like, well, you know, you didn't put in your vacation bid a year ago, so I'm sorry we can't give you the time off right now. So, yeah, that, that doesn't work this way, at least not in Snark's reality. So, he says, what will you do? Go fishing? And Clark answers, no, Perry, go hunting. I thought Clark was a big old wuss. 
and everybody knew it. So nobody thinks that it's strange that he says he's going to go hunting, but that's what he says. And then he says, and that's no lie. Okay, wh- whatever. So immediately he goes to the Fortress of Solitude. And in the Fortress of Solitude, now I think this is a dumb idea myself, but in the Fortress of Solitude, locked up in a safe, he actually has specimens of kryptonite. Again, I don't think that's the smartest idea in the world, but I guess, you know, if you want to conduct experiments or try to find a cure or whatever, I I guess maybe, but I don't know. I never thought this was a terribly good idea. I mean, I would not keep the, the one weakness, you know, if I only had one weakness in the whole world that could kill me, I don't think I'd keep a handy supply of it around at the house. You know what I'm saying? But anyway, so he reaches into the safe And he's thinking to himself that locked inside the safe are uh, various kinds of red kryptonite. I think he means to say various kinds of kryptonite because there's only one kind of red kryptonite. But anyway, oh, I see what he's saying. He says one type once. Okay, so what he's saying is while there's one type of red kryptonite, red kryptonite always has unpredictable effects on Superman. But in this particular instance, he knows, and I love how all the little slots are labeled. Wow. If he had like 4,000 different pieces of red kryptonite that would that would be ridiculous the size of this thing would have to be but anyway <laughs> he has all of these samples of red kryptonite and what the effects are if they know what they are so at some point in the past supergirl and crypto were both exposed to this piece that superman intends to expose himself to and the result was they turned into babies so this is what he intends to do but i, I love these little slots it says type one remove superpowers type two Makes user a giant. Type 3 makes user invisible. Type three or type 4 turns user into baby. It doesn't say a baby, it just says baby. So Superman actually cracks open the kryptonite because it's encased in a, in a little uh, lead covering. Cracks it open and we see immediately his body, body starts to shimmer and he hits this weird tingling sensation. And he is reduced to baby size. Now what I like about this is when he gets reduced... He shrinks and his clothes do not. And at first I thought, ooh, I caught I caught something here because isn't his costume supposed to grow and shrink with him and it's you know, in, you know, indestructible and all that sort of thing. But turn the page and it, the caption box just says, then as Superman's costume also shrinks. And this is a bit strange because while the costume I can see growing and shrinking with him... There's really not an explanation for why the cape would shrink to baby size, too. You would think he'd still have a normal size cape. But it says here, Superman's thinking to himself, he says, As it happened with Crypto and Supergirl, the aura of red kryptonite has affected my costume, too, and reduced it in proportion to my body. Uh, are we buying that? <laughs> I don't know. I'll go along with a gag, I guess. So he checks on the air supply of Kandor, which is nice that he realizes the Kandorians could, you know, need to breathe and everything. And then he flies off, and I'm going to skip a large portion portion of this because it's not relevant to what we're talking about. But essentially, again, this is with Superman. You don't have better things to do than this. He spies a traveling carnival that says it's a carnival for charity, and it's basically being run run by a bunch of unscrupulous people and they're bilking all these kids out of their money. So Superman flies down, snatches some baby clothes off of somebody's clothesline, says, I'll borrow the baby clothes, but stay with me on this. 
So then he takes the clothes, he goes to the carnival, he wins all the carnival games and gives all the prizes to the kids that were bilked out of all their money. All right, whatever. I mean, I guess it's a nice thing to do, but in the meantime, you would think there's probably some real crime going on. As Actually, it turns out that there is, because then as he streaks away, still dressed in the baby clothes, he comes across a couple of bank robbers. So he takes them out, and a couple of old ladies witness this happen, and one of them goes, land sakes, which, like, okay, this is supposed to be Metropolis. This is a city. You're not in Hickville anymore. Don't talk this way. But anyway, she says, land sakes, I never saw an infant do that before. He's like a tiny Superman. And Superman, I love Superman. Sometimes Superman just got to brag, right? And he says, not a bad guess, man, because I am Superman. And he flexes. And when he flexes, the baby clothes rip off of him and i love the way they do it because they rip off in perfectly portioned sections it's like the front half of his clothes falls forward and the back half of his clothes fall backward just perfect two sections the only problem is um now there's a naked baby somewhere in metropolis because didn't he say he was gonna just borrow these clothes now he's done ruin the clothes that's not cool superman so then he drags the two unconscious bank robbers because he knocked their heads together, which I think both cool and really, really, really dangerous Superman. I mean, this is a guy that can move planets and he's knocking people's heads together. So these guys might be dead for all we know, but he drags them into the local police precinct. And he says, here, Lieutenant. And again, I don't think lieutenants actually work the desk. Just saying says are two robbers who uh, held up the suburban... Oh, okay, so they were in suburbia. All right, so I'll forgive the uh, the land sakes thing. He says, I knocked them out. And the lieutenant says, Go on, son. You don't believe us... Uh, expect us to believe that a little tyke in a Superman play costume overpowered two big crooks. And he goes into this whole thing about, you know, they must have knocked themselves out with their own gas and you dragged them in here. And I'm thinking, okay... Even if he was a little kid pretending to be Superman, he just dragged two grown adult men across town and into the local precinct. So at the very least, kid's a hero, right? So Superman actually gets really ticked off with this. And he goes, like fun it did. And he jumps up. So maybe this is an explanation for the cover. Maybe, uh, maybe this is my no prize on this. Maybe he's not so much flying as he just jumps up and smacks the desk. But regardless... He smashes the desk, just like on the cover. So at least they're using the thing that's on the cover in the book. So I like that. So the lieutenant says, I must be dreaming. The kid wrecked my desk with one blow. And then over the Exposition News Network, copyright Michael Bailey, it says, Calling Superman, battleship just hit reef off Cape Maine. Ship sinking fast. Rescue at once. And so Superman says, you hear that radio flash, Lieutenant? They're calling me, and I'm answering the SOS. And he takes off, and the other guy that's standing at the desk next to the Lieutenant says, look, the tot is flying. So he is Superman. So why didn't Superman just do something superpowery earlier? Now, granted, he did when he smashed the desk, but that's destruction of property in this case government property so again not cool i'm thinking that maybe the red kryptonite did affect see there's a number of instances in this story where it makes a point to keep reminding you that superman's only baby sized 
that he still has, I forget how it's worded, something about the the emotions and the feelings and the whatever, blah, blah, blah of a regular sized man. I'm thinking maybe not. Maybe the red kryptonite actually has regressed him a bit. So I don't know. Anyway, so Superman streaks out to sea, dives into the water, and actually carries the battleship to a Navy base in Metropolis. That's actually pretty cool. And then the Navy wants to give Superman a 21-gun salute. Superman walks along, and it's a really weird couple of panels because he's walking along the, the gathered ranks of the Navy men, and as he's walking to his salute, you can hear a couple of the guys, and they go, Superman, and then one goes, That little kid is the Admiral crazy. How can that baby be Superman? And Superman actually looks really annoyed at this. And then he goes to talk to the Admiral and he has just the worst, like smart alecky, like I'm going to fix them look on his face. He actually looks a little bit like Alfred E. Newman as well. And he says, Admiral, I just overheard your men. Apparently they think you've made a mistake. So he actually convinces them to fire a 16 inch shell at him just so he can prove he really is Superman. Sometimes Superman, bit of a jerk. <laughs> so then he streaks off and there's this ridiculous thing. And I'm thinking this is just a page filler where he finds this scientist who's about to launch his infant son into space because he thinks that Earth is about to blow up just like Krypton did. And he wants to be like Earth's version of Jor-El. And Superboy, or Super Baby rather, swaps places with the kid. The rocket blows up. And this was meant to mentally shock the man out of his delusion. And oh, it's, it just gets really, really weird. Skipping over that whole thing because it really doesn't play into anything at all. And it's really super strange. So now, finally, this is what it all hinged on. He says, I leave you now. The phenomenon I've waited for all day has appeared. The Aurora Borealis. And I like this. There's actually some education going on in this next panel where he says, This awesome display of colored lights is caused by electrified particles shot out of the sun, which hit rarefied air, producing gorgeous colors. And you know what? I think he's right on that. (laughs) So for once, comics actually giving you some real and useful information. Who says comics are not educational? And he says, And a few feet away... Uh, away from it, I see a hole as big as the width of my body appearing out of nothingness. This is why it had to become a baby. I had to be small enough to squeeze through this hole. If I had remained adult in size, I could never have passed through this entrance to the Phantom Zone. Hmm. Well, I'm thinking... Doesn't Superman reduce himself in stature and size whenever he goes into the bottle city of Kandor? So why not do that? At least then you're keeping your dignity and everything. You're not becoming a baby, you know? I, I don't know. It, it just seemed, it, that still seems really silly to me that he, he thinks the perfect answer is, I shall become a baby. That would have been really cool if he'd been sitting around his apartment one night trying to figure out an answer to this. And in Bruce Wayne style, like a baby comes through the window and he goes, that's it. I shall become a baby. But anyway, now he's in the Phantom Zone. And he says, this is the Twilight Dimension 
where criminals from the planet Krypton were banished by means of an ingenious projector. And uh, there are some of the super evil convicts, and convicts is in quotation marks for some reason, in this invisible region. Since Kryptonians didn't believe in executing prisoners, they were sentenced to long terms in the Phantom Zone, where they existed as disembodied figures who didn't need food or air. I think this is actually the first time that it is saying that specifically, that while they're in the zone, not only are they phantoms, but they don't need sustenance. I don't know that that was ever really stated before. I don't believe that it was. And we see what is still so far the first phantom zoner. And we see the sentencing of Dr. Zadu. We see the executioner pushing the black button, which is actually in the right position for a change. He's pushing the button. Zadu is fading out. And this guy that's unidentified, it just shows him standing here. He says, only after you have served 40 years, Dr. Zadu, which is incorrect. Zadu's sentence was for 30 years. Now it's going to be interesting to keep an eye on that. And if they ever mention it again... Which will stick, the 30 years or the 40 years? Or will it become a completely different sentence? But he says 40 years. We will push a button on the projector, which will restore you to normal life on Krypton. When Krypton exploded, of course, the Phantom Zone criminals were trapped, unable to leave their invisible dimension. Then one day, when I was Superboy, and it goes into the whole thing that we have already covered from back in... What was that? That was Adventure Comics... 283, that was the first Phantom Zone story. It goes into that whole thing about how he found uh, the box that had been sent to Earth. Well, actually, just blasted out into space by his father, but it came to Earth. And how he eventually, uh, he, he thought to himself, I can't risk anyone ever obtaining these dangerous weapons. And so he threw it into the deepest part of the ocean where only he would ever have access to it. And then what it says here... Years later, Monel, a boy from another world, came to Earth. Now, wait, 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 wait. Years later? Okay, let's rewind here. Adventure Comics number 283, which was, um, the date that I have here is April of 61. Superboy number 89, the first appearance of Monel, was in June of 61. So, not years, Superboy, or Superbaby, Superman, whoever you are, it was two months later. Not years later, months later. So, anyway. Well, wait, then again, we are talking about flashback stories to Superman when he was a boy. So, okay, alright, maybe so. Maybe in, I had never really thought about that before, so maybe in the actual continuity, those two stories are supposed to take place years apart never thought okay that might be some new insight into that all right anyway then we get a whole flashback to the whole thing with uh with monel uh coming to earth and it's real. it's just a quick uh two-page recap here of what happened and i like superboy or superman how he kind of has a um, selective memory on how this whole thing went down because he says we became fast friends until i learned that lead affected him worse than kryptonite hurt me well Yes and no. Um, yeah, they were fast friends until Superboy just kind of turned on him, and he's responsible for this whole thing of Monel winding up and you know with the lead poisoning and all that. But anyway, it does show how he used the Phantom Zone projector, uh, how he retrieved it from the sea. He used it to send Monel into the Phantom Zone to save his life. 
uh, and it shows uh, in the recap, he's telling Monel, uh, if I send you there, life may be hard, but at least you'll be alive. And you may be able to observe everything on Earth, although no one will ever be able to see you. And Monel, Monel's a ch- uh, champ. I-, I love Monel. And he's waving at Superboy as he disappears. He says, thank you, Superboy, and farewell. So no hard feelings. That's one of the things I really like about him. So back to the present. And Super Baby is standing now in the Phantom Zone. Now, weird thing here. He's now in the Phantom Zone, but he himself is not drawn as a Phantom. He is still fully colored and, and looks normal. And he's thinking to himself, how, uh, how well I remember that sad day and how often I've tried without success to discover the antidote for the deadly effect lead has on Monel. Spoiler alert, Superman will never discover a cure for poor Monel. Monel will spend a thousand years in the Phantom Zone. Eventually, we may take a look at that story as well. So he's as he's having these thoughts, the Phantom Zoners come walking up towards him, and front and center, the one who speaks, and I must point out, speaks with a word balloon, says, "Look, there's Superman, our arch enemy, reduced to baby size." How I hate him. Who is it? None other than our old buddy Jaxer, who we met last time around. So already, Jaxer, the front and center guy here. I love that. And uh, he says, if we ever get out of here, uh, he'd wreck our plans just to see outsmarted me the one time, repeat, the one time I escaped from the Phantom Zone when he, when Superman was a boy. So... You have to remember, this is the next story. Right after, let's see, what was that? That was Adventure Comics 289. So that was just uh, two months prior to this. Adventure Comics number 289, first appearance of Jaxer, where that, that, of course, was a Superboy story. So now this is the next one in the publishing history. But they're really boxing themselves in by telling you that between that story of Superboy and this story with Superman, that they only ever met the one time, we will come to find that is not the case. Because, you know, again, there, there's a lot of history to fill in there and tons more years of publishing history that eventually will fall by the wayside. There's another guy standing next to him and he says, ah, Jack, sir, but we couldn't out, uh, he couldn't outwit us all if we all broke out. Since we all come from Krypton, we too would have superpowers on Earth. And the guy kind of recaps Jaxer's origin story for him. And he says, for example, Jaxer, you were banished to the Phantom Zone for destroying a a moon near Krypton with a nuclear rocket. Think of what you could do to the Earth with the same forbidden weapon. And Jaxer answers, he says, I am thinking of it, Professor Vaycox. I'd blow the earth to smithereens. So I like this. Professor Vaycox recapped Jaxer's origin for him, and Jaxer reveals Professor Vaycox's name for us. This is the first appearance of Professor Vaycox. And so then we get a little bit more about him, and he says, Yes, I, Professor Vaycox, could resume my life force experiments. I was sent to the Phantom Zone because I had tossed a test tube full of my formula 
into the Great Krypton Lake. And we get a nice little one-panel pa- one uh, flashback here where we have Professor Vacox and he's standing on the shore of the Great Krypton Lake and essentially saying, Eureka, it works! And we see this giant, hideous, like, Hydra-looking... It's like a cross between a Hydra and the Loch Ness Monster coming up out of the lake. It's a multi-headed dragon plesiosaur-looking thing. It's actually really cool. He says, ah, my life force uh, formula works. It instantly combined with the minerals in the lake to form a monster. So he didn't just mutate the life that was in there, which I think becomes the thing. I think that eventually does become the, the explanation. But at this time, this makes it sound like he created life from nothing, which is actually cooler to me. And he concludes by saying, yes, if I ever get out of the Phantom Zone, I'd create terrible monsters who would destroy whole cities. So Luke, Jack, and Eddie would love this guy. Superman's thinking to himself, he says, what vicious criminals. They must never be permitted to escape to Earth to repeat their infamous crimes. Actually, we will find that Superman will have a change of heart about that idea. But at the moment, he gets distracted because somebody behind him shouts his name and he turns around and he sees, and I really like this part, his old buddy, he sees Monel, essentially his big brother. He says, Monel, after all these years, we meet again. So again, no. You're telling me that in between the time that he was sent to the Phantom Zone and now as, a, as an adult that they never met again, we're going to find that is not the case either. But for the sake of this story, he says, uh, after all these years, we meet again. Uh, as you see, I got your message at Madame Olga. That was her name. Madame Olga's seance. Again, that was not important. And Monel says, thank goodness. I had tried everything to attract your attention. I waited for days for an opportunity to send a message to you. I like that. That's really cool. And I like this panel a lot. It's a little silly because Superman, of course, is a baby. And again, he is not a phantom. I must point that out. Superman, for some reason in this story, maybe it's the nature of the way he entered the zone. Although we will eventually see other stories where other people do the same thing and they become phantoms. So I don't know what's going on here. But Superboy, Super Baby rather, is not a phantom in this in this portion of it, even though he is in the phantom zone. Um, but he is actually kind of, sort of, hugging Monel, who is a phantom. I like that. It's a really nice and heartwarming panel. And Monel's genuinely happy to see him again. And we have Jaxer lurking in the background, just looking on at the whole scene, which is very funny as well. So then we get a recap of something we should not need a recap of, which is Monel reaching his hand out of the Phantom Zone to write the message. And it, now it shows us the whole message. I'm like, oh, okay, thanks, but it's kind of pointless at this point. We're, we're, I'm up to speed, thank you. So essentially what's going on is because of the electrical ion thingy going on with the Aurora Borealis, it has opened a hole in the Phantom Zone. Of course, we know that because that's how Superman got in. But it's only going to steadily widen as the phenomenon continues. So Superman says, I know, Monel, that's why I realized I had to become baby-sized to fit through the hole. Uh, during an undersea mission months ago, I discovered that the projector had become corroded by seawater, so I couldn't use it to get here. So that was the other thing I initially thought was, why don't you just summon up Supergirl and say, uh, hey, could you project me into the zone for like 20 minutes? But of course, this is saying he can't do that because the projector 
um, is now destroyed. It had become corroded with seawater, it says, which is interesting. You would think Superman would have done something better to protect relics from his long-dead father, but all right, whatever. Again, we will see some things with that as well. So for the moment, it's saying there is no, there's no longer a Phantom Zone projector. That will change. And that will actually become a mystery for me as well. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. Um, anyway, Monel points to the hole and he says, but the hole is becoming wider. Soon it will become big enough for the Phantom Zone criminals to squeeze through. Isn't there something you can do to close it? And Superman says, uh, yes, Monel. But it means I must say goodbye to you this very second. Our reunion has been brief, but someday I'll get you out of there forever. So he streaks out of the Phantom Zone, and he's thinking to himself, if energy from the Aurora ripped open this hole and is widening it as it gets closer to the Phantom Zone, maybe the hole can be closed if the Aurora is destroyed. I'll summon Crypto and Supergirl with my super ventriloquism. So he calls to them, they show up, lickety-split, and so the three of them, Super Baby, Crypto, and Supergirl, combine their heat vision. Actually, it says X-ray vision. This is when it was still the heat of their X-ray vision. And they burn up the Aurora Borealis, which really sucks for anybody that enjoys watching that. If you've never seen the Aurora Borealis, it's really, really cool. Anyway, they burn it up. And as a result, the hole in the Phantom Zone is closed. The world is safe from those super villains. And in the very last panel, Superman feels a tingling sensation. <laughs> Insert your own joke there. And he becomes normal size again. He got out just in time, which is what Supergirl points out. And I would just like to say that, yeah, you're lucky, dude. Because he became baby size and then screwed around all day long until it was almost like accidentally he remembered what he was supposed to be doing because when he was fooling around with that weird scientist guy that was trying to kill his kid, that's when he actually saw the Aurora Borealis and it reminded him, oh yeah, this is why I'm baby size. So yeah, he's lucky he got out. Anyway, she says all this, you know, you got out just in time. And he says, yes, but gulp. What will we do uh, if the criminals do manage to escape one day? And I always like these kind of wrap-ups and these kind of sequences with the Phantom Zoners. Of course, they can't see, you know, Superman and Supergirl, I mean, can't see the Phantom Zoners. But it's, it's just one of those great endings where the Phantom Zoners can obviously see them. And they're basically standing nose-to-nose and... Uh, you have Jaxer with his fist all balled up, screaming and saying, Ah, you cannot hear or see us, Superman, but we've been working on an escape method. When we solve it, beware. And I really like that, and that's the end of the story. And that panel is really cool because you have three Phantom Zoners. You have Jaxer in the middle again, like I say, with his fist balled up, and he's shouting at Superman, even though Superman can't hear or see him. You have Professor Vacock standing next to him, and then you have, on the other side of Jaxer, this guy that looks like Uncle Owen wearing Kryptonian gear. So I yeah, I don't know who that guy's supposed to be. He looks a lot like Jaxer, actually, but with a different collar. But anyway, again, now we are seeing <clears throat> that many more uh, denizens of the Phantom Zone. So let's see, all together here, we have Jaxer, we have Vacox, and then we have three unidentified phantom zoners whether or not they 
are part of the phantom zoners we just saw in the previous story who knows they're not identified and they don't particularly look like the other ones so again phantom zone getting fuller and fuller all the time but we do we did get another name phantom zone villain out of this one professor vacox who uh becomes a thing and we will see him uh again and again beyond this point never really becomes one of the front and center phantom zoners so to speak but uh he does play his part, and uh, and I like this guy. So, notes on this one. Of course, first appearance for Professor Vacox. Zadu's sentence is now 40 years as opposed to 30. I don't think that sticks. I think it does go back to 30, but we'll have to watch for that. No telepathy in this one. The Phantom Zoners actually speak and, uh, and are spoken to. So the telepathy, telepathy thing has not come along yet. If that truly was telepathy in the last story, it didn't stick. Uh, but we will say that come along. Phantom Zone projector is destroyed, which is a very interesting thing because the very next story, and we're going to cover this next time around, I will not be covering it here, but the very next story, there will be a Phantom Zone projector. It is not the one that we had previously seen. It is a new type of Phantom Zone projector. And my burning question is, where's it come from? So that will be very interesting. But for a time, there will not be a Phantom Zone projector. It, 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 they will stick with this idea that it's, uh, it has been lost somewhere between Superboy's era and Superman's era. But eventually we will get a new one. And so far, I have not been able to find where that actually materializes from. It just kind of shows up. But it is a new brand of projector. The big thing I wanted to talk about for a moment was the author of this story, Robert Bernstein. Now, Robert Bernstein, of course, is the creator of the Phantom Zone, or at least he's the writer of the first Phantom Zone story. So I'm giving him credit as the creator of the Phantom Zone. Um, Not a name I was very familiar with. Um, You know, a lot of these old stories from this era, in fact, I'm pretty sure all of the stories we've covered so far, they didn't have writer credits on them. So it was really only in recent years that I have learned who wrote any of these stories. But that name really just didn't strike any sort of chord with me. I really didn't know who Robert Bernstein was. And just by sheer dumb luck coincidence, um, as listeners to Back to the Bins may have heard, um, I'm on a read-through right now of the very earliest Marvel comics from you know, the Marvel age of comics from fantastic Four number one forward. I'm reading in chronological order, the very earliest Marvel comics and really getting into it and really enjoying it. I I, I'm discovering that, um, you know, as much as I thought I knew about, you know, those characters and, and Marvel comics and everything that I really didn't have a lot of exposure to the very earliest adventures of a lot of those characters so it's been a lot of fun. It's It's been very educational, much like this project has been. But one name that kept coming up again and again, and I have to confess, the reason I really started to take note of this name is that typically the stories I enjoyed the least uh, with particular characters, when I researched it, turned out to be by this one author whose name kept coming up again and again and his his name as it was credited in those stories was simply r burns uh b-e-r-n-s 
So I did some research and looked him up, and lo and behold, R. Burns is actually Robert Bernstein, same author. And the stories where I really noticed him was uh, he did a handful of Iron Man stories. That's really where the bulk of the stories I didn't care for came from, uh, was his particular Iron Man stories. They just tended to be, you know, I, I hate to say it, but they tended to be the dumber Iron Man stories with the dumber villains and the dumber plots. Um, he also did some Thor stories, which were, uh, I would say, about 70-30. You know, between 70 being you know pretty decent stories and about 30 of them being like, eh, kind of turkeys. But he did do uh, the Radioactive Man and, and some other Thor stories that I really did like. And then um, he did at least one Human Torch story. And the Human Torch stories, it doesn't seem to matter who wrote those. Um, they're almost always groaners. But his was especially bad. But it was just really interesting to me to find that, you know, here was this guy that I just recently learned wrote, uh, you know, the first Phantom Zone story. And if memory serves, I believe he also wrote that Mon-El story, that first Mon-El story. And, you know, who, whose work I greatly respect. I really enjoy those stories. and I'm really digging this stuff. Also worked on this early Marvel stuff. And so, you know, I did a minor amount of research reading up on the guy. And he has a very interesting history because, you know, he was a, a fairly regular writer for both companies going back to, I think I believe it was back into the, the 50s, maybe even back into the 40s. Yeah, it was back into the 40s. He actually did some work for EC as well. And then all of a sudden in the uh, in the mid 60s, he just seemed to just drop out of comics altogether and, and went on to, according to his uh, Wikipedia page, actually became a concert impresario and playwright. So got entirely out of comics. So not a huge body of work, but man, you know, as it pertains to Superman, what an impact this guy had. I mean, the Phantom Zone was, a, that was a major uh, component of of the Superman mythos, and and this guy is is directly responsible for that. So you know, good on him. Unfortunately, uh, he is uh, long since passed. He passed in, I believe it was 1988 that I read. But uh, again, I thought that was really interesting. That that's the beauty of you know doing a project like this, or even you know the Marvel project that I'm doing is, is just you know learning that much more about the history of these things beyond what I knew previously and beyond just simply just reading and enjoying the stories is actually delving in and learning a little bit about the behind the scenes stuff. And I thought that that was particularly cool. Anyway, um, that's pretty much it on this particular story. Now, again, much like the last one, this story was reprinted in a book that I own and, uh, and thought I remembered fairly well. It was reprinted in Superman number 212 from 1968 I have that book and I remember that book very well because it's the one uh, where the cover is Supergirl showing us uh, Superman's baby pictures and Superman's even saying something to the effect of, oh my God, you're not showing the readers my baby pictures, are you? And right there, one of the pictures is a recreate, pardon me, a recreation of the cover of this issue where Super Baby is smashing the police desk. So why I didn't remember this story, I have no idea. But I really had no memory of this story. I Again, I thought I was reading this for the first time. So I don't know what that says about me and my memory. But uh, anyway, 
Also reprinted in Showcase Presents Superman Volume 3 Trade Paperback from 2007, which is the same place that uh, that story from Superman 150. So if you track down that uh, that trade paperback, you know, sounds like you're going to get some good Phantom Zone stories in there. So, let me think. I believe that's pretty much everything that I wanted to talk about with these two stories for this time around. And yeah, I think that's a good place to cut this off. Look like we're about a, an hour and a half on this episode. So again, I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, I hope you're digging the uh, the way that I'm doing these episodes, edit free and all that, stream of consciousness. Again, please continue to give me feedback. Please continue to write in and uh, I will get with you guys real soon. I do not have a regular release schedule in mind for this show i'm pretty much just gonna bang out episodes uh as often as i can whenever i get the opportunity but again i i am making much more of an effort to be at least more semi-regular how's that for vague but i i do want to put them out with greater frequency than i was able to do um you know in in months and years past so be on the lookout for uh, a new episode real soon is what I will say because I really am getting a, a, the biggest kick out of this. This project's been a whole lot of fun and there's some really good and exciting stories coming up. That's what I can do. I can tease next time. So let's see. Next time around... Well, looks like next time around we will get the second appearance of General Zod. And beyond that... I'll have to decide what other stories I'm going to cover, but at least that one. So you can look forward to that. And an appearance from the um, Legion of Superheroes as well. So, all right, that uh, that pretty much concludes us for this time. Again, I am Snark McGill. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you guys real soon. Take care. You can contact Back to the Fins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks. From a doomed planet in a distant galaxy to a fantastic underground hideaway. From the fortress of solitude to the bustling city room of the Daily Planet. Look, up on the screen, it's Superman. Superman, the movie.